cryptocurrencies give us a decentralized financial system. OpenBazaar is a decentralized commerce system. A merchant can log on to OpenBazaar and post a listing for an item. For example, a t-shirt that I want to sell for $15. My item listing will spread throughout the OpenBazaar peer-to-peer network. A shopper can download the OpenBazaar desktop application and see my listing for a t-shirt. The shopper can pay me $15 in Bitcoin and I will send the t-shirt to their address. If I were selling that shirt on Amazon, the corporation would take a cut of that transaction. OpenBazaar has no transaction costs, so users get to save some money. However, users also miss out on the benefits of a corporate marketplace. Amazon makes sure that the seller will send the item to the buyer, and makes sure that the buyer pays the seller. On OpenBazaar, an escrow system is needed to place money in the hands of a neutral third party until the goods are delivered. Amazon ensures that the distributor sends the item to the customer. On OpenBazaar, users need to figure out how to send those goods to each other. Brian Hoffman was the first developer to start working on OpenBazaar, and the project has grown significantly since his initial commit. OpenBazaar now has buyers and sellers and open-source committers, and there's a clear desire for an open system of commerce. Brian is also the CEO of OB1, a company that provides services on top of OpenBazaar. OpenBazaar is a protocol, and other companies will undoubtedly emerge to build on top of it as well. In our conversation, Brian discussed how OpenBazaar works, the peer-to-peer protocol, the escrow system, the dispute resolution system, and the open source community management. It's a fascinating and unique project, and I hope you learned something about it from this episode. To find all of our old episodes about decentralized technology and blockchains, you can download the free Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or for Android. In other podcast players, you can only access the most recent 100 episodes, but with these apps, you can get all 600 of our past episodes. You can get recommendations based on your listening history, and they're open-sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open-source project to get involved with, we would love to get your help. A shout-out to today's featured open-source contributor, Justin Lom. He has been working on improving the iOS code base, and I know all of the Software Engineering Daily mobile users appreciate his effort. Thanks, Justin, and thanks to all of the open-source contributors. Let's get on with this episode. Brian Hoffman is the developer of OpenBazaar and the CEO of OB1. Brian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. OpenBazaar is a decentralized marketplace. With Bitcoin, we have decentralized money. Why do we also need a decentralized marketplace? Well, I think, you know, very early on when Bitcoin, you know, after Bitcoin was created, it was realized that, you know, if it's going to serve as, as some kind of payment mechanism, in addition to to being a store of value, you know, there needs to be somewhere to use it. And early on, people were just sending it to each other directly in the forums and things like that. But, you know, there was always this idea that maybe there could be this more advanced marketplace that would match up buyers and sellers and allow them to spend their Bitcoin to, to receive products or services. And, and this never really happened in a concerted way until 
there were some websites that would accept it and things like that, but there was never really a, like a good marketplace. So I sell software engineering daily t-shirts on Shopify. That's a centralized marketplace. How is it different if I sell those t-shirts on Open Bazaar? So the idea behind Open Bazaar is to accomplish a similar goal, which which is to, you know, get Bitcoin for a t-shirt. But we do it in a much different way behind the scenes and in a way that creates a lot less a lot less requirement for centralization and, and trust. So if you were to sell t-shirts on Shopify, let's say you sell Donald Trump t-shirts and all of a sudden, you know, the, the people who run Shopify say, oh, well, we don't like Donald Trump. So we're going to remove all of the stores that sell Donald Trump t-shirts. Your business could could instantly disappear because you're kind of at the behest of of this, you know, company or centralized organization. In, in our case, because Open Bazaar is completely peer to peer, it's up to the participants of the network to decide what stays and what goes. And so those Donald Trump t-shirts would remain for sale just like if you were running your own website. And and so that's that's one primary advantage of it. So, you know, with Bitcoin we have permissionless money. So, no one can tell you how to spend your money or where to spend your money or who you send it to. And, you know, they can't take it from you. And in this, and in this way, your, your online business can't be taken away from you as, as well. Would Open Bazaar work without Bitcoin? So Open Bazaar was designed to uh, be agnostic to the payment mechanism. We have a, like, a, like a smart contract type system for how you, you know, set up a trade like how you list your product, how people say, I want to purchase the product and, and so on. But one of the most unique aspects of it is the idea of this escrow system. And what that means is, you know, if, if, if I want to sell something to you with Bitcoin and I send you Bitcoin, I, I can't get a refund unless that person gives me the refund. And so it's quite risky to say, hey, I'll buy your t-shirt. Here's the Bitcoin. Please send me the t-shirt, you know, and do you have no recourse? So in Open Bazaar, what we have is a special type of Bitcoin address, which the merchant and the buyer kind of co-own. And, and so the money can't really go to one or the other unless they both agree. And so it serves as this escrow. And so when you when you're going to buy the T-shirt from somebody, you would put your your money that you want to pay to the merchant into this special account. And when you receive the T-shirt and you're happy, then you guys both agree to give the merchant that money out of the escrow address. And so mm-hmm. that that actual capability it really only exists in these cryptocurrencies. There's no real way to do that with like a PayPal, for instance. Mm-hmm. So so that is necessary. So that's why Bitcoin is is necessary in this case. But there are other cryptocurrencies that have similar functionality and could could replace Bitcoin there. Like we said, I am a merchant. I want to post my t-shirt my software engineering daily t-shirts on open bazaar describe the process that a merchant goes through to post an item so right now open bazaar is is a desktop application that runs on linux osx and um and windows so you would go to the openbazaar.com website and download the app and install it which is really simple but once you're running the app there's no registration or anything involved with it because it just runs on your computer and you're immediately presented with your store. You just, it's like a, a couple clicks. You say, create a new listing. You fill out the information for your item, add a photo, add a price, shipping options, 
pretty simple. Looks seems similar to other marketplaces. And once you hit save, your listing's live on the network and people can go and buy it immediately. So, you know, within five minutes, I would say for most people, they can have at least one product up and, and running in a store created. Mm-hmm. And describe the process by which somebody makes a purchase on Open Bazaar. So the same same thing would be required to get started. So you download the app and run it. You can search for items in the app or you can browse through the through the main pages and see what you want. And once you click on the item, you'll be, you, you have a, a buy button and um, you can either pay using the Open Bazaar wallet, which is in the app itself, or you can pay from any other Bitcoin wallet you, you have if you already have that. And you would just basically pay the amount of Bitcoin that's required, enter in your, your shipping address, you know, where you want your product to be sent if it's a physical product. And then once once you pay, you know the merchant will fulfill the order. Yeah. Okay. Well, so now we can get into the lower level aspects of this. We've talked about the high level user experience. Okay, it's an e-commerce. It feels like an e-commerce site. I go on the website. If I'm a merchant, I I'm sorry. I go on the application, the desktop application. We'll get into why it needs to be a desktop application. I post my items and. If somebody wants to buy them, they have to download the application, they open up the app, and they make a purchase. Under the hood, like you said, OpenBazaar runs over a peer-to-peer network. It's a Kadimlia-style peer-to-peer network. I think people kind of know what a peer-to-peer network is. It's a decentralized network where peers are communicating with each other and information spreads in maybe kind of a what is it, epidemic style, or what's the, just a gradual gossip protocol, that's a typical peer-to-peer protocol, the way information spreads. Uh, What is a Kademlia-style peer-to-peer network? So on on our network, you know, rather than spreading, you know, like if I I get on the network, I connect to the peer-to-peer network, and I want people to know that my my store is out there, some networks, you know, will will do the gossip and, and just kind of gradually tell the entire network that they exist. But the way that we do it is we use uh, something called a DHT or distributed hash table. And what this allows you to do is rather than as the network gets bigger and bigger and bigger, let's say there's a million stores on it or a million users, you, you have to track a million users and kind of understand what the state of the network is for all million. You basically have a subset of those and um, you're able to kind of branch out using the DHT to find someone that you're looking for. And so the entire network is partitioned into a list of, you know, a range of hashes. And so the way it, it works is, in our case, academia style is like, let's say you have, you know, a million nodes, you probably only have a couple dozen in your routing table. And you would say, hey, I'm looking for this store with this hash. And you look in your local table. Oh. I don't have that hash. Okay. So what's the hash that's closest to this guy that I do have? And then you ask that person, okay, do you have this hash? If they don't, then they give you the closest hash and it keeps going until you find the actual hash or you realize it's not in the network. And so that allows you to do a much less, you know, it's much, much less intensive to try and find that, that node rather than have to like search through all, all the table or keep track of all the table locally. So that's, this kind of, um, 
kind of in a nutshell how it works. Kademlia is just um, one style of that. And there's there's an algorithm that, that kind of goes along with that. That's that's more much more detailed. But we, you know, most importantly, we use something called libp2p, which is being built by protocol a company called Protocol Labs. They're they're also responsible oh. for interplanetary file system IPFS, which which is what we use. And so, you know, I mean, it, early on, we we had our own homegrown P2P protocol that we built on top of Kademlia. But uh, we've we've since migrated to IPFS. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to get into that migration a little bit later because that sounds like an interesting process. The model of your network allows for lighter weight nodes than the Bitcoin blockchain. It's not like the Bitcoin blockchain where you have to download the entire transaction history of the Bitcoin ledger. Explain why that is. So, so there's uh, just you know first first there's two two modes you can use Bitcoin in. One is the full node, which is probably the best option, but the most resource intensive, right? So you have to download the entire blockchain to your computer. It validates all the transactions. In some cases, it sends out transactions to others if they need it or they request it from you. But this takes up many many gigabytes of space on your computer it takes a long time to sync up the entire blockchain it, it's really hard for users to get up and running immediately so so the, and, and also for like mobile clients it's like almost impossible to run a full node on your on your iphone or your android because of that requirement so there's something called spv wallet which is a simple payment verification which basically it connects to other nodes and kind of asks for validation and, and does that and then it listens from the time that you created your wallet for transactions that come in for your wallet and so in open bazaar you know we we didn't want to have to burden users to say hey you have to run a full node in order to like just buy things or sell things so we initially the first version of open bazaar we just said oh look we're not going to create a wallet we're just going to let it, people use whatever wallet they want but this was kind of kludgy because when you wanted to buy something or sell something, you had to jump out of Open Bazaar and go to your wallet of choice and deal with that. So in 2.0, we created our own SPV wallet that's inside the app, and you can you can use that by default. And so it doesn't require you downloading the whole blockchain, doesn't require any of that. You can immediately get going and make some payments and, and make payments out of your wallet, and it's much more light on your computer. And hopefully that will transfer over when we release a mobile and web version how how does identity work in Open Bazaar? Because obviously, like if I post something on Open Bazaar, I want my merchant ID to be associated with my postings, and purchasers want their purchase ID to be associated with their purchase. How does identity work? So, your identity in Open Bazaar is very similar to your identity in Bitcoin, which is there's no registration process, right? Like where someone is tracking your name and social or whatever it is that you use to uniquely identify your email address. You're basically, your identity is, is your key that gets generated. And in Open Bazaar, we create, we use a, a mnemonic, which is like, you know, a phrase of keywords to generate a key. And from that key, we create your Bitcoin wallet as well and in your store in, on IPFS. And so... 
the key is basically your identity. So if you have control of your key on the network, then that's, you know, that's who it is. Whoever controls the key basically is the identity. Now, going forward, we're, we're working on ways of uh, integrating other projects that can tie to that key. So for instance, we're working with uh, Blockstack and they have uh, like a naming system. So you could go to Blockstack and, and sign up for a Blockstack ID, which is like, you know, say, oh, I, I own Brian Hoffman dot Blockstack dot ID. I own that kind of like pseudo domain name and I can tie that to an OpenBazaar key. So I can prove ownership of the OpenBazaar key and I can prove ownership of the Blockstack ID and link those. And so people can find me on OpenBazaar using my Blockstack ID instead of, you know, a key basically. And, and that makes it much more convenient. And we're, and we're looking at ways of using that Blockstack and perhaps um, Ethereum's naming system. And there's a couple other options. And so, you know, really it's kind of opt-in, but you know, ultimately it's really just about the key. I mean, if you own the key, then that's, that's the identity. <laughs> right. So this, for people who are unfamiliar, this is the idea of public key encryption where you have a public key and that public key also is associated with a private key and you can use your private key to uh, verify that you created a message. People can verify that you created that message with a public key so you can sign it. Uh, you can also you can also uh, encrypt messages or people can encrypt messages to you using your public key and that you can in, uh, decrypt with your private key. So it allows for, uh, it's, it's a generalized way of doing, pr- you know, identity-based transactions. We did a show about Keybase that was actually released today. What about the, the Keybase protocol for for letting people have their their public keys? Would that work with OpenBazaar? I mean, it doesn't currently right now, but this is something that has been requested. And... You know, I mean, the answer to a lot of a lot of the engineering questions, right, is like, well, how much time do we have and what are our priorities, mm. you know, but, but yes, yeah, certainly something like that could be integrated into into the system. I mean, early on, we had kind of a GPG feature. It didn't get used a whole lot, but and we, we didn't carry it over to our, our new version. But, you know, there's a lot of different ways things can be tied in. We, we just have been staying simple for the most part, but... Mm. I actually haven't done any shows about Blockstack. I'm a little bit curious about that. How what does Blockstack do in terms of identity? Why is that your like your kind of your identity system that you're you're looking towards working with? So things move fast in the in the blockchain space, but originally Blockstack was called one name and their primary service was they used something called Namecoin to create like domain names. And so the idea was like, we'd have this decentralized domain system, you know, to replace DNS. And, and so for us, we thought, you know, a couple of years ago, like that's, that's exactly what we need, right? We need a distrib- a decentralized naming system so that people can reach stores. And, and so we went with one name when it was back with the basic, you know, the basic concept was just that. And so we still kind of use mostly just that feature out of Blockstack, but Blockstack has grown. I mean, they changed their name because they wanted to grow past just naming systems and they're creating like a more of like a decentralized internet approach. So they want to have storage, decentralized storage and naming and everything that's kind of create, you know, used or needed to create a decentralized web. And so that's their new vision. 
And so we use part of it. I mean, it's a whole stack of, uh, you know, capabilities, but you know, we're looking at what else they offer as well. But right now we use IPFS mostly for storage and stuff. So we, we didn't really have a need to use a lot of the other block stacks stuff. Uh, I see. Okay, so they have some overlap, some stuff that overlaps with the, with the IPFS Filecoin, etc. project. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, and and I think you know what maybe uh, not obvious for some people is that in a peer to peer world, a lot of the things that are simple in the centralized world are less simple. For example, if you just want to do a search over the listings in open bazaar it's not exactly like searching over amazon hitting amazon servers and they search over some you know centralized database that has all the listings it's a little bit more complicated to help illustrate to people why this is not as straightforward as certain centralized things and this is like a a totally a trend in you know the 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 shows about Bitcoin and decentralized stuff that I've done is like the temptation is always to go the centralized route. Like, oh, let's just <laughs> let's just make a centralized search engine. Why not? You know, but you can't do that if you want to adhere to the decentralized nature of what what this movement is trying to do. So it, it contrasts the centralized search approach with the decentralized search approach. Sure. So the, a really good analogy is 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 the P2P file sharing that we've seen over the last you know. 10 or more years you know originally we had napster and limewire which were like much more centralized peer-to-peer networks where you could get on them you could search for things right in the app find the items you wanted and then you click on it download it and it was easy but then you know those guys got shut down it was not good and then BitTorrent came along and m- most people realized that like there's not there's not an awesome search feature inside of BitTorrent itself natively right like you have to people say go to pirate bay or wherever find a listing then it opens up a magnet link or whatever and then it opens up your BitTorrent app and it's always been that way and the reason is because it's just so much harder to build a good search engine on a decentralized technology and it's the same for for open bazaar so and the reason is because a peer-to-peer network is full of a bunch of really diverse peers and in our case we have people running Open Bazaar in over 180 different countries on different internet connections. Some really, really horrible. Some really, really great. They're in different geographic locations, so there's different latencies and how you connect to people. And not to mention that, but people are turning off their app and turning it on, turning it off, and turning it on. So you can already see the difference between like trying to find. If I'm trying to find a comic book that someone's selling, I have to do, I have to kind of crawl all over that really, really unstable network of peers going in and out and ask each one of them somehow if they've got this content I need. And then I want it returned instantly and I want it to be sorted and searchable. I mean, it it just, the the demand is really high in relation to like what you can provide. And, you know, the opposite is like Google, which has already done all that crawling. They're constantly crawling with massive machines, data centers. They're they're cataloging it. They're optimizing it, indexing it, and then they're caching it and sending it back to you instantly. And so you're only asking one really, really fast data center to give you results. So decentralized approach is so much better than decentralized way. I mean, that's why Google is so great. I mean, it, it took a decentralized internet and, and made it fast. You know, in our in our case, we realize that that central point of failure is is not great, and so in 1.0, we 
we did not do a centralized search. We just made uh, like a come. We kind of cobbled together a decentralized search, which was really rudimentary to see if we you know how well it would work, and it basically stunk. <laughs> it's really bad. It just is super slow. It didn't return results very well. It basically worked about as well as you think it would, you know, after I explained that. And so in 2.0, we kind of took a different approach to it. And we said, look, we realize that the technology and engineering is not there yet to to really build a great decentralized search engine. Like no one's mm. done that yet. So we'll, rather than create one central database, uh, you know, one central index, search index, we're going to let anybody create a search engine and we'll integrate mm. those in. And so if somebody wants to build a search engine that focuses primarily on real estate properties, they could do that. If we have one that's like super strict and doesn't want to allow any kind of sketchy products or services in there, fine, you know, whatever the niche is. And so in a new one, we have, we have three search engines right now, different search engines, and you can, you can, choose which one you want as your default, or you could browse between them and they have different indexes. I mean, some have different rules, restrictions. Um, so like OB one, my company, we run one, which, you know, we operate out of the U S so we follow U S laws, anything illegal in our jurisdiction, we, we remove from the index, which may mm. make people happy or unhappy depending on who you are, but there are two other options and they have different rules and operate out of different areas. And, you could even create a separate one on, you know, behind Tor or something that that's just anything goes. That, that's it's up to the users. And so while they are central points of failure, the experience is just so much better that we decided that, you know, this is an okay compromise. It was an okay enough compromise. So it's not truly decentralized search, but at least it works. And you know, that's just, it's just one example of a compromise we've had to make so far because we just know the technology is not there yet. This is a great time to acknowledge that OpenBazaar is a protocol. This is not a centralized store where everything is the same no matter where you are. Well, I guess if you go to, if you go to Amazon in China, it's different than the Amazon that you see in America. So even that is kind of a balkanized world, but it's a protocol. And so, you know, there is trans there is there are transactions that occur over Open Bazaar that are for illicit items. But there are conversations that happen over TCPIP that are illicit, that are illegal. And we don't blame TCPIP for that. Similarly, we're we're not gonna blame Open Bazaar for the sale of heroin under certain situations. So let's let's get into talking a little bit more about this protocol. Describe the trade protocol, the trade protocol that describes how trades proceed. Sure. So so the first thing is, is like the entire mechanics of the network operate using something called Ricardian contracts. So so really early on I mean, we started in 2014. So at that point, I believe Ethereum was still being built and there really weren't any other s truly smart contract platforms out there. So Bitcoin has a scripting system within it. So you can do base, like pretty basic smart contracts, like the escrow one I described, but nothing like really elaborate, like nothing that you could create this complex protocol on top of. So we said, okay, look, 
we know that some of these things are coming out and there's going to be all these different options and we don't know which one's going to win. So let's create something that's a little bit more agnostic, something more neutral. And we found something called Ricardian contracts. So my co-founder, uh, Washington Sanchez, pitched this idea to us. So basically the idea is that you have a, a kind of a contract, which is machine readable and human readable at the same time. So basically it's in our in our case it's a json structure so we define what the contract structure is supposed to look like so you know there's a listing structure which would be like you have to have a title and it has you know this many characters at most you know it has a pricing and it's going to be priced in satoshis or you know bitcoin you know it basically defines the schema for like what a listing should be and and that's the beginning of the contract but then, there, then it also we define in our protocol what are the phases that the contract can go through. So there's there's the initial offer, which is like this is what I'm selling. Then there's a bid, basically. So the buyer comes along and says, I want this contract, so I'm going to offer this to you. And then there's the acceptance, and then there's like a bunch of different phases within an open bazaar that it goes through. And you know, it can be, you know, if the vendor rejects it or if you know, he issues a refund or like there's a dispute. There's all these different, like there's a whole flow that OpenBazaar goes through. That's the definition of the trade protocol. Like how does that, how does that work? And and what does the, what do the peers actually expect in each of those states in order to be a valid contract? And then we use digital signatures throughout that process to make sure that the contracts are valid and that the right people are, are actually participating. And that's all written into the code. And so it's not, necessarily a smart contract so to say so to speak but it is a contracting system and there is a protocol for how how those proceed would you contrast the smart contract versus the open bazaar contract as being less smart because there's a more narrowly defined set of features that you can put into a contract well i think a lot you know smart contracts for the most part i think they lean on more automation and and kind of so for instance like a truly smart contract for a marketplace like ours might be like when you know the the software would look to ups's api and when it sees that this package id was delivered it would instantly release the money to the merchant and everything would just kind of go on in our case um, the buyer would have to go back into the software and say, yeah, I got it, hit a button, and then that would initiate the next phase of the contract. And so we don't have the ability to do a lot of those automated things like natively as part of the um, the cryptocurrency. But, but you know, it, it kind of does similar things. Well, that's a cool aspirational future to look towards because there's no reason why we couldn't have that eventually. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, I think the biggest the biggest compromise here, I think, is, you know, when it comes to smart contracts, you have to kind of commit to one platform, because if I choose Ethereum, for instance, as my smart contract platform, I have to write all of my code in, in Solidity, you know, the language, and there's, you know, the, the certain nuances of, of that language and, and Ethereum that you have to code around and do all that. And so, well, what if you want to move to a new platform? It's, it's a really hard process. And so what we've done is we just like tried to look at it from the perspective that there are going to be a ton of these currencies out there. We've already seen Bitcoin's dominance go down, you know, because there's all these other new tokens and things out there. 
and we want to we want everybody to be able to use open bazaar it's not it's not a bitcoin protocol so you know per se it, it's it's really just a decentralized protocol and so bitcoin happens to be the first you know option that we we leverage but we want everybody to be able to use it and so we've tried to build like a very agnostic contracting language that could that could work on all those platforms and, and you're central. right as far as aspirational yeah i'm sorry to cut you off but um just to finish the thought you know i think using oracles and and, and hitting outside apis to automate those processes you're, you're exactly right like that that's coming and we're just trying to really nail down the experience to make sure that like it's really really good and then we slowly roll those things in as it makes more sense rather than just try to do too much you know like get the whole kitchen sink in there from day one central to open bazaars protocol is the idea of an escrow an escrow is a neutral party that that two two people can you know if two people want to make a transaction if i am going to send you a t-shirt you put money in your es- in an escrow account so that when the t-shirt makes it to you the money will make it out of the escrow account to me because if we didn't have an escrow i would have to send you the t-shirt and i would have to trust that you're going to send me the money eventually. So escrow is fundamental to how Open Bazaar works. Describe how the escrow service is implemented. Sure. You're exactly right in how, how that works. So first thing, Open Bazaar supports both options. So a merchant can choose to, to operate under an escrow business or just accept direct payments and make the users trust them. Some vendors opt for that because the escrow actually adds a little bit more complexity to the situation. And if they're a well-known brand, they may just say, hey, look, our users, our buyers, are, they know us well enough. They know where to find us. They can trust us. And that's that's their choice. But, you know, if you're a nobody and you're running a small business, you know, most users are going to opt not to buy from you because it's too high of risk. So they, they would look for the escrow. And the way the escrow works is, uh, a merchant has a has a public key, like you like you mentioned earlier in the show, and the buyer has a public key. You know their identities for Open Bazaar, and what happens is you take those two keys and and you can craft a special type of Bitcoin wallet or address that is a mixture of those. That basically, in order to send money out of the wallet, you have to have both people sign a transaction uh, before it's valid, and so you have this ability to create a, an escrow type wallet and, and when money goes into it, you know, they have to agree on what to do with that. So in our case, we use that capability. So when a merchant or when a buyer wants to purchase something, he'll, he'll get, they'll, they'll work to the nodes will get together and they'll create this address and the buyer will send money into that address rather than sending it directly to the merchant. And the merchant will, since he owns the address, he'll be able to see that money went into it and got confirmed in, in the blockchain. So, okay, the money is definitely in the escrow account. He'll feel secure enough to, you know, deliver the goods. And once the goods are delivered, the buyer will actually sign a transaction saying, yes, I want to move all that money out of the escrow account and give it to the merchant's wallet that he owns by himself. And then he'll send that transaction to the merchant and the merchant will sign it as well. And he'll send it to the blockchain. And then the blockchain will say, okay, both people that own the escrow account want to move this money out of here. Let's do it. And then it, conf- it confirms and, and that's it. So the, the merchant will get the money. Now, we also have a backup. So if the buyer forgets to release the money to the merchant or refuses to, 
after 45 days, that transaction will just happen. And so the money will go mm. to the merchant. And so they're encouraged to resolve the transaction between before that time period goes out. But this is the result of, we've seen a lot of cases, you know, when you, when you buy something off of Amazon, you give them the money, you get the goods and you forget about it, right? You don't go back into Amazon and say, oh yeah, yeah I got the goods. You know, he can have his money now. That, that, that whole concept doesn't, doesn't translate or exist. And so you see a lot of times the buyers will just abandon and they'll forget to give the merchant the money and the merchant's really upset. So in this case, it's just kind of an extra protection for the merchant. So he'll still get that money. So explain more how disputes can arise and how those disputes can be resolved. I know you touched on it there, but go into that in a little more detail. Okay. So I explained kind of the, the happiest happiest trail, easiest <laughs> uh, case. Uh, but sometimes that doesn't always work out, right? Somebody's unhappy, either the merchant or the buyer. And so we have a concept of a third person, a third type of user called a moderator. And what the moderator does is you can think of them as a customer support. So in Amazon, if you have a problem, you know, the guy didn't send you the right product or it was broken or something, you can contact Amazon and ask them to resolve the issue. In OpenBazaar, there is no company to call. You know, Obi One exists, but we don't that we don't run the network and we don't have visibility of the transaction. So there's nothing we can really do. But we have a third type of user called a moderator, and they're who you call when you have a problem. So within the OpenBazaar interface, you can open up your order, and you have a problem. You hit this, I have a dispute, file a dispute. And so what happens is that third type of user will get notified and say, hey, we have a dispute. We need your help to resolve this. Now, to back up, how did that guy even show up? How did he get involved at all? Merchants can choose from a list of people who are on the network that serve as these dispute people. And that's an opt-in thing. Anybody can be a dispute resolution person and advertise their services. You add them to your store. So you can pick a couple of them and uh, they have different costs associated with them. Like, you know, like if you want to be a dispute person, you can say, Hey, I'll help you resolve your disputes. I charge 2% of the transaction if you need me. And so you can kind of hire these guys out of the network to help, help you out if you have disputes. So when you purchase a good, you you will select the moderator you you want to use or trust for that transaction that the merchant suggested, and they'll be there just in case there's a problem. So you, you filed this. So you've gone back to your order. You filed a dispute. The person you chose in the purchase process comes into the picture. The three of you have like a a joint chat session. You can explain to them what's going on, what the problem is. You both get to like give up your sides. And the moderator can then decide how to resolve the dispute if you guys can't figure it out yourself. And so, so basically they have the option to either refund all the money back to the buyer, give all the money to the merchant or any combination thereof. So they could split it down the middle. If they can't decide, they could give a, a bigger portion to the merchant and a little portion portion to the buyer. It's up to them. And, and then they get their cut out of that. And the way that this works, is that it's a, it's a it's an even more complex version of the escrow address. This a, it's a th- two of three address, and what that means is that two of the three people involved have to agree to sign a transaction before the money can move. So it breaks the deadlock between a buyer and a merchant if they can't if they can't agree on what to do. And so the moderator will sign a transaction saying here's the refund or whatever, and he'll send it to whoever needs it and then they would sign it. So if it's a case of a refund to a buyer, 
the buyer, the moderator will say, okay, here's a transaction where it returns all the money out of the escrow back to the buyer. He signs it, he sends it to the buyer. The buyer would sign it and submit it and he got his money back. Or it could go the other way. And, and that's another, it's a little bit more complex version of, of a smart contract within Bitcoin, which is like two of three. Hmm. So as, as like a super complex way, it's hard to kind of explain it. It makes more sense when you're actually using it, but, but it creates a, a marketplace for dispute resolution, which is also kind of interesting. It's like crowdsourcing customer support. When your network is not run by a company, you can't hire a help desk or a customer support team necessarily. Right, like we we have we're, we're scaling it out to the whole network, and and people can earn money to help others. Makes sense, and to go along with the crowdsourced narrative, Open Bazaar is an open source project, and this is a tremendously complicated project, as you've articulated. You've got uh, this complicated peer to peer process. You've got payments. You've got incentives between lots of different parties that you have to keep aligned. So managing this across an open source and project and making sure that everybody in who's working on the open source project understands the different parts of it has got to be a complicated management challenge. So let's let's talk about the open source a little bit. First of all, what are the parts of the project? I was looking at the open source repo and there are several different projects. How is it broken up? What are the different projects that are in different repos? So we have a bunch of different repos, but the two, the two biggest and most important ones are the the back end and the front end. So the back end server, which is openbazaar-go, which we wrote it in Golang, it basically is the the node software, basically the server software, and it is what complies to the protocol. It's the one. It's what handles the Bitcoin transactions. It does all the, the heavy lifting. And the other one, the desktop repo is basically the, the, the client, which just talks to the server through an API, through a REST API. And it is, I mean, it makes the user experience, you know, shows what the marketplace could look like. And in our case, you know, we thought of the client as being sort of a reference implementation. Like anybody can run the back end code and write their own custom front end to talk to it, and, and that's their view of Open Bazaar. This is just our example of what it what it could or should look like. And so those are the two repos that we work out of mostly. And those 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 two teams have to work together to make sure that you know they're they're in sync on what's expected because if the back end changes the way that transactions work, you know the client's not going to understand how to send. Or, or purchase a good or whatever. And so, yeah, there is a lot of coordination between that. I mean, luckily we have a pretty small and dedicated team of devs and a lot of them work for my company. So, you know, we can coordinate really well, but it is, it is really, is a really huge challenge. There's so many moving parts. We, we run into a lot of problems all the time, you know, where there's a misunderstanding about how something might work. But, but the cool thing about open source is that it's all out there. And so, you know, people that come along and are interested in knowing more about it or have a knowledge in a certain area, perhaps search engines or, you know, Bitcoin transactions or something like that will find stuff for us and, and, and make suggestions or like help us fix things. And so it's it's like a huge, massive team effort, which is the best part about open source is like, you know, you anybody can collaborate with it and and contribute. So it's a it's a beautiful meritocracy 
and uh, you know we're really lucky to have a lot of people helping out. How, how do you manage the open source community? What are the challenges that you've had to overcome as you've been learning to delegate, or maybe you can't delegate because people are just contributing of their own accord? What piece of advice do you have for people out there who are trying to manage open source communities? I think there's all all kinds of unique challenges. I mean, so in technology, I mean, everybody has an opinion about how things should be built or what languages you should use or how it should be done or what it should look like. And so really the management, the hardest management task is kind of like getting people to be to get, you know, come together on a certain vision and a certain approach and kind of follow that all the time. And, you know, you, you constantly get new people that come onto the project that, that kind of, you know, maybe unintentionally try to hijack what's going on, you know, like, Oh, why did you use Golang? You should have used this or, or just submit code to do things in a different way, which has like pretty big ramifications. So it may seem like it's like a, you know, a useful feature, but like it kind of screws up everything else you're trying to do. And so how do you, how do you encourage people to contribute when you don't necessarily want to take all their stuff? That's like, a that's a big challenge. There's different skill levels of people that come in and help and, and, and don't know where to start. So like, how do you get, how do you, how do you get people involved in a really complex project? Like where can they dive in and help out? You know, other challenges are, you know, just human challenges. People get in arguments and, you know, like people that are critical to the project, you know, decide they don't want to work on it anymore. We've had that happen before. Or, you know, like, uh, I mean, there's just all kinds of different challenges. It's it's not much different than like a normal closed team, except that maybe people feel compelled to be a little bit more brazen and outspoken because they're not necessarily being paid in a lot of cases. So it's a volunteer thing. And so you have to understand that. Well, and uh, we've you know. seen that, the the brazenness or the acrimony, we've seen the extreme of that in the Bitcoin community. We've also seen the the more positive atmosphere that can happen in the Ethereum community when you have a, a benevolent dictator that is really tuned into the different incentives and uh, the different arguments uh, for for either side, I think you know Vitalik has has done such a great job as a leader of the Ethereum community. I don't know much about the Open Bazaar community, and I guess there's you know people ha- don't maybe the stakes are not exactly the same because people don't have like an Open Bazaar currency. But can you talk about you know maybe some of the more vitriolic uh, situations, or or have you been able to avoid vitriol? You know. Could you, can you go there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, obviously a project like Bitcoin or Ethereum is going to have like way more issues because A, like you said, it's a currency. It's, it's got value and anything with money is usually pretty contentious once it gets large. But, you know, I mean, you're talking about millions of people being involved with that. And like, we're not there yet with OpenBazaar. So you have way more diverse stakeholders and... And, uh, but you know, the thing is, is we have a huge overlap with that community as well. So, you know, most of our, almost all our users are, are, are Bitcoin savvy. And in a lot of cases, they have a lot of Bitcoin. I mean, you know, some of our users are millionaires in, in cryptocurrency. And so, you know, if you, if you have, you know, screw you money and, you know, that changes how you act with people a lot of, a lot of times. I mean, it's sad to say, but you know, mm. if you feel like 
you have a lot at stake and you have a lot of control and you don't have a lot to lose, you're just going to be super honest with people and and make claims. And so we get that a lot. And, and Bitcoin has that same problem too. I mean, they're, they're making million dollar bets over like certain things will happen and it's just insane. But that, that comes with the territory. So you have to deal with that. In our case, in Open Bazaar, like I said, we still have like a pretty small development team, but we do run into issues. And, you know, a lot of it is like, what is the direction? What, where should we go? Like which direction? Because you only have so much bandwidth to, to build things. You only have so many people working on it. If we say we're going to turn, you know, if one person wants to make sure we build a super secure anonymous wallet into the app, that could take the whole team and that could keep us from building some other important feature that we think we need. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of the contention is really around like, where do we go? There's so many different angles we could take this. And, you know, uh, right now, because, you know, we're about to launch 2.0 probably later this week, uh, the full version. And then we're going to be thinking about what what's what's next for Open Bazaar. You know, we have a whole slew of ideas to put on the roadmap and uh, that will we'll have to kind of go into that forum and and make our case for what we think is next. And, and we do that in an open source way. Like there isn't, I mean, yes, I'm kind of the benevolent dictator of Open Bazaar in, in a lot of ways, but I try to make sure that it's, it's, you know, it's a broader consensus. Like I don't just say, hey, we're gonna do this from now on. Like I'm usually used as like more of a tiebreaker type of situation where if we, if we literally can't break through a log jam, I, I will help out. But and, and I think that so far that it, you know, it, it creates some confusion sometimes because, you know, that we have to work it out. You have to come, you have to figure out what you're going to do. And there's no one to just say, hey, we're doing this. But I think it's it's created like a really interesting and creative platform. I mean, it, when you look at it, it's it does some things that are super unique, I think. Hmm. What kinds of transactions are most popular on Open Bazaar. Tell me about the culture and the types of people that are selling and buying stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this is one of the the more challenging questions to answer because we don't really have like a deep insight into exactly what people are are doing. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Right. So we can't just look in our database and say, huh, oh, a bunch of comic books sold. We we can see what's on the network. Like, what are people currently offering? And right now, a lot of it is like, you know, collectibles, clothing, you know, it's kind of small businessy type stuff. Like you know, there's some drop shippers that are selling all kinds of electronics and things like that. But, you know, if, if you think about if you think about it in, in Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin is a deflationary currency, which means it's getting it's gaining value basically as time goes on. And so if you if you have like five Bitcoin today, it may be worth one hundred dollars, we'll say just for conversation speak, you know, but next week, maybe it's worth $500. And so, you know, it, there is this like really huge incentive for people to acquire Bitcoin, but maybe not spend Bitcoin. So we see a lot of people offering up things that like, oh, I have this in my house and I want to just, I want to get Bitcoin somehow. So I'm going to put this on there and see if people will give me some Bitcoin for it. And so you kind of, you have this weird eclectic mix of like small businesses and like garage silly type stuff right now. And you also have a situation where tool is not quite advanced enough to tie into other types of systems that serious merchants need. So shipping integrations, fulfillment systems, things like that, like, like a Shopify might have or an eBay. 
And so we're not quite attracting those types of merchants yet, but we're working on it. And in terms of buying, you can, you can go into the search engines and see like what products have ratings. I'm looking right now, you know, there's technical books, uh, clothing, comic books, steam games, things like that seem to be like the top, top items that are being rated and that ratings are tied to transactions. So it is one unique way of like seeing what has actually been purchased on the network, but we don't know how many, you know, for sure. We don't know who's buying it, things like that. Hmm. OB1 is your company that leads the development of Open Bazaar. What are the goals of OB1? So OB1's so OB1 didn't exist from the beginning. We went for about a year, a little over a year building the software just in our spare time. It was a side project. And then we raised venture capital and started OB1. And OB1, the goal of OB1 was to basically build a business on top of the platform. So our hypothesis was, look, we're going to build this open protocol and there's going to be all kinds of different like things on top of it to improve it that we wouldn't want to bake into the protocol or make open source, but someone's going to need to offer it to the users. And we want to be the first company that capitalizes on that because we build it, we understand it, we have a really great advantage there. And so OB1, the goal was to, you know, contribute to building the protocol, but also eventually offer services to users. We haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten to the point where we're offering services to people yet because we've been focused primarily on just getting the product out in a state where people can use it well. And so we're kind of in that transition period between delivering the product and actually starting to build services that are useful on top of it. I mean, you need users slash customers before you can, you know, sell them something. So that that's really still our primary focus. Yeah. Do you, do you think it'll be like the WordPress business model? I don't think it. I don't think it will be that because I think. I mean, I think more likely is that we're going to try and find ways within Bitcoin or the protocol or or some other cryptocurrency to to generate a revenue model. Like it's more interesting to us to like stick with the blockchain paradigms rather than use like the the kind of WordPress model. And also WordPress, like, I think for instance, their case, you know, it makes, there's like a much clearer way to like charge their users. For instance, like Mm. it's a server software. So, you know, you need servers and you need people to run the software and manage it and maintain it. So you either have to do it yourself or you need someone that's an expert. And so that's a great revenue model for us. You know, OpenZar, we want it to be easy enough for anybody to run on their own computer or their their device, they don't really need hosting, for instance. So like, I mean, not to mention, we don't really want to be in control of hosting it because then we're a central point of failure and it kind of goes against the decentralization model. So we have to look at ways of creating revenue that are a little bit different. So for instance, you know, maybe we offer some kind of insurance model. So maybe, you know, the escrow model is not great. And, you know, they're, they're having problems and they want to use some kind of buyer protection. And so maybe they buy buyer protection insurance through us. We offer that. Or maybe we have a reputation service. Like we vet merchants and vouch for them. Uh, you know, like there's, these are just like a few ideas. But like, you know, those are types of services that wouldn't be part of the core protocol, but like still would provide value to users. And it would be an opt-in option. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's a more, certainly a longer term 
point of view than saying, oh, let's figure out a way to ICO. You know, I mean, ICO, I think ICO, the whole concept of ICOs is, is a craziness wrapped around like a nugget of an idea that could, could be good. It could be good. Yeah. Right. I think I still haven't seen someone do it right. And we have a lot of... Not even IPFS? Well, so so IPFS, I think, you know, I mean, obviously they haven't delivered yet. So I, I don't know. I don't know for sure if they're going to meet their demand. And I really love their team. I mean, Juan's a good friend and I think that they're great. And if anybody's going to do it, I definitely believe in them. But, you know, we still haven't seen that happen, right? So the idea of Filecoin is good and we just need to see it executed and that's what's i think so scary is that you know now we have like something like 1900 different tokens out there and we still don't have like one example other than ethereum itself as being super successful and and ethereum's biggest success you could say is in creating more coins so you know like that smart contract uh reality hasn't hit us yet or it hasn't been completely fulfilled other than for crowdfunding so you know that that's a that's who knows so is it a big bubble and it's going to blow up and none of those things are ever going to happen or are we just not there yet Mm -hmm. um i tend to think that we're probably not there yet and that there are a few that are going to do it right and they're going to actually come up with something cool that's that's useful and and most of it's going to be garbage so the way that we're looking at it is you know we we wrote a huge blog post about like why we would never do a token or like why we're not thinking of a token at the moment but we always left the door open, right? Like if there was a way that we, we could really be assured that this is something that would like benefit our community and make a difference. And it could be done in a way that was right for everybody. Then we would, I mean, we, we made that compromise when we took venture capital funding, which was a huge stink. People like there were a lot of people that were like, Oh, we're not going to work on this anymore because you guys raised millions of dollars and like, you can just pay for it. It changed the dynamics of our project dramatically. You know, but we we wanted to see this thing happen, and and we wanted to make sure it we accomplished our goal. So in the same way, I mean, if it comes down to it, there may be a day where an ICO or you know some kind of crowdfund is the only way we can move forward. Maybe VCs decide, you know, blockchain companies are just not going to return on our investment, and we're out. You know, like how how do you fund your project? It may become the only option. So you know, never say never, but you know, ultimately. We haven't really seen a model that that works perfectly or that works well yet well enough hmm. all right well uh brian you know we didn't get to talking about the ipfs refactoring but uh maybe i don't know somebody else on the team or uh we can you know do a, do a different show about that because it seems like a very interesting topic that seems like a complicated migration but uh you know unfortunately we're out of time so thanks for coming on software engineering daily i know you're a busy guy and I'm watching the Open Bazaar project closely. It's really fascinating. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I love talking about it, so it's never a problem. Wow.